the last time we talked about themes as you read the book of Revelation. We talked about themes to look out for because that's the way to do it. You don't read it. Well, how many of you get a, a download an album or if you're old school like me, you buy a CD and you listen to the album one time and then you put it on the shelf and you don't listen to it anymore? Nobody does that. What do you do when you hear a new, I don't even everybody in here has probably got different music takes, but when you hear a new song by your favorite artist, what do you do? You put it on repeat. You, you annoy everybody around you by playing the song over and over and over until it becomes played out. That's what we do because you love it. You want to hear it more. And when you listen to the song more, you notice different things. You pick up a different rhythm. You pick up a different melody. You pick up a different so hip hop. You get a different sample. Uh, you get different stuff every time you listen until the song becomes a part of you. And then you don't even have to think about it anymore. You just quote the lyrics randomly. Or a movie, your favorite movie. You've probably seen your favorite movie more than one time. You've probably seen it a few times. You probably can quote scenes from your favorite movie. Well, that's what Revelation is like for the early Christians. It was, it was something that they would hear. They would hear it read out loud in church. It would be read. It would be performed almost. And they would hear it over and over and over. And every time new things would emerge new concepts, new themes. And because Revelation was, is painting a picture for the early church to describe the world that they live in. Now, we were just here singing about battles and surrounded, and most of us are probably not going to go out and literally get shot at. You're probably not going to literally be in a battle where you're flying jets or driving tanks. Most of us in here, hopefully. But nevertheless, why do we sing about being a battle? Why do we sing about or, or think about our life as a battle? Because it's a good image to describe what it feels like when we're going through things that seem to be attacking us. Well, that's the image, the dominant image that Revelation employs throughout the book is battle imagery, war imagery. I was thinking about this while we were singing. I didn't know which songs we were going to be playing, but while we were Singing songs like, ah, well, this is fitting. God has a habit of doing that. Because the, the thing that we're talking about today is Revelation's use of battle imagery and what it means. There's a literal battle going on on the other side of the world right now. There's a literal war happening. Russia, Ukraine, there's a literal war happening there. And in other parts of the world that don't get as much press coverage. Literal wars. So sometimes we have a tendency to think about when battle, that's over there, war, that's over there. And Revelation puts everything in the perspective of, no, 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 no. The battle is universal. The battle is everywhere. Now, there will be physical battles. There will be physical manifestations. There will be differing manifestations. The letter of Revelation starts, or the book of Revelation starts with letters to seven churches. And each one of them faced a different challenging situation. But in each one of them, they are promised that if they overcome, that they will receive the reward, which is battle language in the old, in, in the ancient world. You win a battle, you receive the spoils of war, so to speak. And so what Revelation is trying to do is to tell God's people, you're in a battle, even if you don't realize, even if you don't think you're in a battle, you're in one. But guess what? You're going to win this battle if you're on the side of the winner. And the side of the winner is this character that we're about to meet in this chapter. 
And we're going to start, it's going to be, I want to remind you real quick before we go that Revelation is pulling back the curtain. That's what the book's name means to reveal. And we also saw last time how Revelation was written to churches who lived in the Roman Empire. And you worship the emperor as a manifestation of your patriotism and your devotion to the ideal of the Roman Empire. And this is the goddess Rome, the woman seated on seven hills. And so this was the world that the early Christians lived in. Rome had the power. Rome was the force of goodness in the world. Rome was the force of sophistication and, and, and uh, spreading Roman culture and education and safety and good roads and, you know, making sure nobody starves and all of this kind of stuff. That's how Rome pictured themselves, the benevolent force for good. And Revelation was written to Christians who were suffering under the boot of that empire and saying, this is what Rome wants you to believe. Let me show you what God wants you to believe. And that's the book of Revelation. The most important theme, Revelation casts, and especially in the later chapter, starting in chapter 12, it casts this sort of unholy trinity. Like the, the Satan parodies everything. Satan can't do anything original. He's always got to take something and parody, sample it, twist it, distort it. And Revelation does that with the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're sort of an evil counterpart. And it is this character, the dragon who brings forth the beast from the sea, who then is worshipped or made people ready to worship by the beast from the land. And how that in Revelation is Satan and the empire and the cult that demands people worship the empire. And this was the background of those images that Revelation uses. So when you're reading and you start reading about this beast and then this beast and then a dragon, who's who, you can kind of lose track of what's going on, which is fine. But the big picture idea is that Satan is mocking and twisting and distorting things that are good. And everything in Revelation, everything the original readers of Revelation were seeing was this is who's in charge. This is who's in charge. Rome is in charge. Rome and the gods of Rome look down upon us with favor. And if you want to be a good Roman citizen, if you want to be a good person in this world, if you want to just get along, just get by, have people leave you alone, then pay homage to the gods, fall in line, follow the way of this world. That's the message the early Christians were being told. Revelation comes along and says, let me, let me, like we talked about last time, Hand you the two pills, like in the Matrix, a red pill and a blue pill. To the red pill, you're going to see reality for how it truly is. Revelation says, take this red pill and have your mind blown. And that's what happens. And so the number one theme in the book of Revelation is this theme, hearing versus seeing. What you're hearing, what you're being told, and how when you actually look, it's entirely different. And I'll show you, we're going to look at, we have time, two examples the Lion of Judah. Now, we Christians have, have talked about or sung about the Lion of Judah. There's worship songs about the Lion of Judah. You go to certain churches and they have banners and things, and it'll be this mighty Lion of Judah. And let me show you where that image comes from. In Revelation chapter 5, so if you have your Bible or if you have your Bible app on your phone or whatever you read scripture, or you can just look on the screen. We're just going to look at chapter 5. 
I'm going to show you the scene. Chapter 4, all of heaven is worshiping the creator God. And the creator God, the one seated on the throne, it's this vision of the throne room. And it's a vision of creation, worshiping and praising, and everything is just overwhelming. And then chapter 5 starts, and this is what we read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now pause. In the ancient world, if you were a king, a ruler, a general, someone of authority, you would sit on a throne, or typically the emperor. If you issued an edict, if you had an order to be given, if you had a plan to be put into place, if you had a law to be declared, it would be written on a scroll. And if it were an edict that was going out to your provinces, the scroll would be sealed. Now, not like a Ziploc bag or Tupperware. Like a seal was, you melt some wax, push it onto the paper where the paper folds over of the scroll, and then your signet ring, which is your signature, basically, you would stamp it into the seal. So anybody out in the field who got that scroll, if the seal was broken, the message has been compromised, and you don't put it into effect. So it was like a safety measure. So John sees this vision. He sees the one who sat on the throne, and he has a scroll, and it's got writing both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. So that's always, it's, it's full of something important, and it is totally sealed, seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? The ruler has his plan. It's ready to be put into effect. Who can open the scroll? Who's worthy to put this thing into effect? Who's worthy to get the ball rolling? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside this whole plan of God, this whole thing that's about to unfold in the rest of the book of Revelation, because this is right at the beginning of the part where it all kicks off, it looks as if it's not going to happen, and things are going to go on the way they are, and Christians are going to continue to suffer under the root of Rome, and life is just going to be what it is. And so John weeps because there's nobody that can put it into effect. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look or see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And this word triumphed is the word conquered. Has conquered. Triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in his seventh seal. So he says, don't weep. Look, the lion of Judah, the root of David. These are Old Testament imagery of the messianic king, the one who would come from the, off the, the, the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse and the, the, the tree that would grow into the Messiah, who is David, the one who is from the tribe of Judah, which was prophesied to have the, the king, the Messiah, the ruler of Israel. So this is a, as conquering an image as you can imagine. Okay? Then I saw, so he heard, one of the elders said to me, then I saw, Looking as if a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Or it can be translated a lamb looking like it had been slaughtered. Standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. So he hears, hey, don't go, whoa, whoa, relax, stop crying. There's the, the conqueror's here, the king's here, the root of David, the lion of Judah. 
And he turns and looks, and it's a slaughtered lamb. A sacrificial slaughtered lamb. It's not just any lamb, though. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is Revelation imagery for seven horns. Horns represent power and authority throughout the book and all of scripture. And the seven spirits of God is a phrase going all the way back to Zechariah about God's Holy Spirit and its being everywhere. So this is a lamb that has been slaughtered, but it's not just any lamb that's been slaughtered. And so he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, that saw the worship crowd in the last chapter, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense. These are instruments used in worship, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every language or every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So this is all of creation acknowledging in the throne room of God that this lamb, who is the lion of Judah, is worthy and has conquered but not by conquering, but by being conquered, by being slain. And his blood is what redeemed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, beyond what the Roman Empire could ever hope to gather together. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. This is the way of just saying innumerable. They were encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive. And then this sevenfold thing that he's receiving, power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You only give this type of, of um, doxology to God if you're a good, faithful Hebrew boy or girl. And yet here it's being given to the lamb. Throughout Revelation, God and the Lamb have this identity merging. It's never explained fully because we can't comprehend it, but in some way, somehow, this Lamb is worthy and is co-identified with the one seated on the throne. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. So that's everything, every creature, all of creation saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the scene that kicks off the whole book of Revelation is this lamb figure, this slaughtered lamb. Don't think mighty lion. He hears mighty lion, but when he turns and looks, slaughtered lamb. That is who is going to receive glory and power and honor and praise. That is who is God is in his nature. The one who will allow himself to be conquered as the means by which he would conquer. And that's one of the key themes in Revelation. Hearing versus seeing. He hears lion. Lions are pretty 
large animals, pretty scary animals, especially in the ancient world before there were such things as zoos and veterinarians and petting areas where you could go and see little cute lions. Lions were terrifying. They hunted at night, you woke up, your family member was gone and there was just sandals left because they had been eaten, right? Lions were terrifying. That's what he hears. And Root of David, tribe of Judah, these are military images from Israel's history. That's what he hears. But when he sees, when he turns and looks, he sees slaughtered lamb. Revelation turns expectations on their head. I'll give you another example. The 144,000. You come from Jehovah's Witness churches. You're probably thinking this is, I've heard all kinds of stuff about the 144,000. So people think they're super Christians. They'll get the front row seats in that VIP box. Everybody else gets life here on a renewed earth. Other people are, no, these are the, the Hebrews, the Israelites that are going to come to faith during the tribulation. Didn't you read left behind? Don't you know how this works? So there's all kinds of views about who these 144,000 are. Let's do what we just did. Let's look where it comes from. Revelation chapter 7. In chapter 5, the lamb is introduced. In chapter 6, the lamb starts opening that scroll that's sealed, and all hell breaks loose on earth. And things start happening, and judgments start coming, and it looks hopeless, and it looks like things are out of control. And yet the whole time the lamb is in charge and God is sovereign. Nothing is catching him off guard or by surprise. Then when it looks like everything's about to reach its climax, in chapter 7 begins, it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent anyone from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. So it's like these angels are holding back the forces, like, hold, hold your brave heart. And he's like, hold, hold, now, and then you release it. That's the image of what's going on. The angels are holding back God's judgment. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. Seal with, which you would seal a stamp with, the authority. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the land of the sea, the judgment angels. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Hold on. We got to know who our people are. Hold on, we got to know who are ours. This comes from the Old Testament. An image before God's judgment, there was a vision, and the prophet was told in the vision that God numbered and sealed his servants to protect them from the wrath of the judgment. Well, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And then you get the list of all the tribes and 12,000 from each. All right, what's going on here? We you know, don't have time to go super in depth, but let me just tell you, this is a military census. If you open the Old Testament to the book of Numbers, do you know why the book of Numbers is called Numbers? Because it begins with a list of numbers. And there's a list in the middle of the book of Numbers. And those numbers are the tribes of Israel and their military fighting units. X thousand from the tribe of Judah, X thousand from the tribe of Gad, X thousand from the tribe, you know, and, and the numbers change depending on when in Israel's history or the census is taken, but it's a census. And census were taken in the ancient world, not to find the demographics of the neighborhoods so you could build a better school, but to say, how many fighting men can we muster? How big can our army be? That's why you took a census. That's why God was mad when David took a census, by the way, at the end of his life. So he hears military census. That's what he hears. I heard, don't miss that, it's right there. I heard the number. 
of those who were sealed. So that's what he hears. Military census. 12,000 from this tribe. 12, 12 times 12, that's 1,000. All of those numbers have theological significance in terms of showing fullness, completeness. Then after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Wait, you just spent a whole three verses counting them. And then when he looks, in uncountable. And not from the tribes of Israel, but from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Not Hebrews, not Israelites. When he turns and looks, that's what he hears. Tribe of Judah, tribe of Israel, you know, all the different tribes of Israel. When he turns and looks, a vast multitude, far beyond 144,000 from every tribe. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They weren't wearing armor. They weren't holding swords. They were wearing robes and they were holding celebration palm branches. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's their battle cry. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is full-on worship now that God's people have been identified, have been sealed in the vision. Then one of the elders asked him, hey, these in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? He's given John a chance to interpret the vision to make sure he gets it. And John answers, very honestly, sir, you know, meaning I have no idea. I don't even know what's going on here. I'm just taking this all in. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Tabernacle imagery. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them. That's a great promise in the desert. It's a great promise if you're a pale ginger like me. Nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He hears 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. When he turns and looks... He sees an innumerable multitude from all the nations of the earth. Who are the 144,000? That's a military image describing the people of God who are giving themselves or willing to be martyred or, or overcome in service to their God. They're faithful. He hears the military census tribes of Israel. He sees an uncountable multitude of faithful martyrs from every nation. This is the image that Revelation gives God's people to show them who they truly are and who they truly serve. Because if we don't know who we are and we don't know who we serve, we can very easily buy into the lies of the world, the world's desire for power, the world's desire for authority, the, what the world says is the way we should go. But if we know who we are and we know who we serve, then we have a vision of what we're doing. And that gives us an identity 
that gives, and God's people in the first century in Asia Minor, they needed an identity because the ones who were Jewish had been kicked out of their synagogues because they worshiped Jesus and the, the synagogue leaders, others were like, they're not Jewish anymore. And to this day, a lot of people who come from very religious Jewish families, when they say, I believe Jesus is Messiah, they are kicked out of their family many times. I have friends to whom that's happened. And other Romans who were coming in, they had never had the history of Israel, so they, didn't, they weren't even grounded in the Old Testament. They just, what Rome was saying is, you're not good citizens. You're atheists, is what they would call Christians, because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. They worshiped this, this backwater peasant from a place called Galilee who went to this other place called Judea at the butt end of the Roman Empire and pretended to be a king, and we had to put that rebellion down. And he's dead. He got nailed to a tree. And they said something about his body not being there and risen, blah, blah, blah. But who believes that nonsense? We're Rome. We don't have time for this. So Roman Christians in Asia Minor, whether Jewish background or Gentile background, they needed identity. They needed to know who they actually were through heaven's eyes. And that's what Revelation tells them. But here's a quote from Richard Botham, who's one of the best Revelation scholars you'll read. He says, the perspective of heaven must break into the earthbound delusion of the beast propaganda in order to enable a different assessment of the same empirical fact. The beast's apparent victory is the martyrs and therefore God's real victory. All throughout Revelation, God calls his people to conquer. And all throughout Revelation, the conquering is depicted as being willing to lay down their life, as being willing to be conquered. Now that flies in the face of everything we Americans like. We like to be the conquerors. World War I, World War II, we're back-to-back -back world champions, right? We want to conquer. We want to put the boot on somebody when the bad guy rears his ugly head, we want to smack it down. That's our version of the Roman propaganda story. And what Revelation is saying is that's, God does not look at conquering that way. God looks at conquering by, think of those martyrs on the beaches in Libya, the Coptic Christians and the, the one Christian who joined with them, who ISIS beheaded on the beach. Those were the conquerors. In the eyes of Revelation, those are the conquerors. In the eyes of Revelation, the Christians who are staying in Ukraine and praying and taking in refugees into the churches, those are the conquerors. So people in North Charlotte who are going and finding kids who are at risk and mentoring them or finding a single parent who needs some help and buying them groceries for a month, that is the conquering, not the accolades of the world and certainly not the physical victories of subjugating other people. So revelation is giving God's people kingdom eyes on how God sees victory and how God sees winning. And so, last hearing versus seeing, what about Armageddon? We hear all of Armageddon, Battle of Armageddon. Oh, China's, Russia, Israel, Middle East. I mean, if you go on Google right now, prophecy experts have a field day with this Ukraine. They're trying to connect it to Gog and Magog and how this is a fulfillment of this prophecy and this. Just don't, just forget all that. That's noise. Revelation at the end of the book, it gets switched. At the end of the book, chapter 19, the angel said to me, write the following. This is all kinds of stuff that's happened. We don't even have time. But this is the end of the end. Like, final judgment. 
Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding banquet, the banquet of the wedding celebration of the Lamb. You ready for a wedding, wedding banquet? What more joyous event can there be than a wedding banquet? So that's what he hears. Then I saw heaven open and here came a white horse and the one riding it was called faithful and true and with justice he judges and goes to war. So he hears the call to a wedding banquet of the lamb. He sees a warrior on a white horse riding into battle. So this is the final reversal in Revelation or a final, there's actually many of them, but he hears it, wedding celebration, let's get ready. You see, uh-oh, right on a white horse. He's not playing. That's what he sees. So here's the key. The final battle in Revelation, and then you can look up chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 19, chapter 20. They all depict it in a couple of different ways. But the final battle in Revelation is never a human war. Never. The battle of Armageddon is no battle at all. If you read the book, all the armies line up. All the people of the earth come together and we're going to play war against Jerusalem. And in, in Revelation, is Jerusalem symbolic or is it literal Jerusalem today? And commentators, that's why they divide on how to interpret it. But here's the point. All these armies that line up against Jerusalem, whenever that symbolizes in Revelation, when the rider on the white horse appears, they're cut down instantly through the word that comes out of his mouth. Never through human battles. Never through armies outmaneuvering others or stockpiling nuclear weapons or using guerrilla tactics or any of this stuff. It's never a human battle. So Revelation is like a Christian war scroll. The war scroll was a document that the Qumran believers, the, the, the Essenes, the people that John the Baptist hung out with in the desert who died and they left the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of their documents was the war scroll. And the war scroll said, the Essenes, they believed, by the Dead Sea, living out the wilderness, they had left Jerusalem. They said the temple is corrupt. Everything's corrupt. God is about to judge the world. The Roman Empire is about to be destroyed. And we are going to be the sons of light. And we're going to go into the desert. We're going to isolate ourselves. We're going to make sure we bathe every day. They baptize themselves daily in these ritual baths. You can still go see them today. And they were like, we're going to get in a holy huddle. And we're going to wait. Because God is about to bring judgment. And when he does, we're going to be ready to fight. Literally. And Revelation is like kind of a Christian version of that with an ironic twist. Revelation says, yeah, the Lamb's followers throughout the book, 144,000, they are God's eschatological army, God's end-time army. That's true. But they wage war by their faithful, uncompromising perseverance in the face of suffering, and if necessary, martyrdom. That's what Revelation calls. It never, not one time in Revelation, does God ever call his people to ever take up physical arms against other people for his glory. Now, that doesn't, I'm not getting into whether governments have a right to wage war, just war theory, pacifism, any of that stuff. Christians are going to disagree on that. But in terms of for the kingdom, yeah. there's yeah. no holy war in Revelation. Yeah. And so, what's the message of Revelation? Well, this is the main message. If you want to just skip the book and just write this down, don't do that. Read the book. But this is the summary. The whole book can be summarized as this. Maintain your faithful witness to the Lamb 
whether in the face of temptation, temptation to compromise, to just go along, to get along, to be like the culture, or suffering, threat of persecution, and you will inherit the incomparable glory of the eternal kingdom that really matters. See, Rome was all about glory. Rome was all about might. Rome was all about nobility. And being, you know, everything about Rome was aspirational. Well, that sounds like every other country since then. It certainly sounds like America. It certainly sounds like Mother Russia. It certainly sounds like what China communist leaders want to portray their country as. Every country wants to portray itself. Every society wants to portray itself as the pinnacle of all things virtuous. And what Revelation is saying is it's all a sham. They are all at best twisted, disfigured parodies of what the real kingdom is. And the real kingdom is incomparable. And the real kingdom spans every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. The real kingdom has no borders. It has no flag. You pledge allegiance to the lamb and the lamb alone and everything else is secondary. That's the message of Revelation. And it flies in the face of everything Christians in Asia yeah. Latin would be. But that's the call. So when we read Revelation, we're pulling back the curtain. Now, here's the thing. In Revelation, it's the most hopeful book in all of the Bible if you follow the Lamb. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not following the Lamb in Revelation, you are following the beast. If you don't have this, like people, people always wonder, oh, I'm not getting that vaccine. That's the mark of the beast. Or I'm not going to get a credit card. That's the mark of the beast. Or, oh, what's the mark of the beast? Let me tell you, the mark of the beast is very clear. If you're not following the lamb and don't have his seal on your forehead, guess what? You are wearing the mark of the beast. That's the revelation depiction. Is no two, there's no three sides in revelation. You're following the lamb or you're following the beast. And most people follow the beast because that's how they buy and sell and live their life and get ahead in the world. And that's just so that you don't have to worry about some future end time person tattooing people with barcodes or credit card chips in their pants or any of this kind of sensational stuff. Because that stuff's really cool sounding and makes for interesting movies. And it makes it seem like, oh, there's this big thing. Reality is like, no, 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 you're missing it. You're already in it. You're already in this, and if you don't have the seal of the lamb on your forehead, then you do have the mark of the beast. Amen. So you have to choose which, who you give your allegiance to. The beast, the world, the empires of this world, or the lamb. Yeah. Now, in Revelation, if you follow the lamb, like I said, it's the most hopeful book that you could possibly read. Yeah. If you don't follow the lamb, it's the most terrifying book you could possibly read. Because you will not be sheltered from those judgments. You will not be sheltered from the rider on the white horse. Because you are declaring, if you are not following the land, you're saying, I'm not going to follow you. That means that you are going to put yourself against the land. And so when it comes, when he returns, when Jesus returns, you're either for him or you're against him. And your whole life is a series of decisions about am I for or am I against? And so, yeah, you may have said a prayer when you're eight years old at a youth camp or something, or somebody gave an altar call and you got baptized for the 12th time or whatever, but it doesn't matter. It's not an event. In Revelation, it's not a once and for all event. It's an everyday walk. Yeah. Are you following the Lamb today? You wake up the next day, am I following the Lamb? 
Am I following the lamb today? It's always about the present. Past doesn't exist anymore. Future doesn't exist at all. It's only about the present. So the question here, here on video, watching around the world, wherever you're watching from, sitting here, are you following the lamb? If you're not, you are following the beast, even when the beast doesn't want you to know it. She's secret. You're not going to come out and say, I'm the beast, follow me. It's going to say, that Jesus stuff is good at home, but keep it at home. Wow. That, that Jesus stuff is okay. You can hoop and holler in church. That's fine. But when you get to the workplace, I'm going to need you to cut corners. I'm going to need you to gossip. I'm going to need you to get in the pecking order. Yeah. I'm need you to compromise. That's the message of Revelation. So Revelation is not about events that are going to happen at the end of the world. It's about events that have been happening since Pentecost and will continue to happen until the end of the world. And that's why it has an enduring message to every Christian who reads the book. And that's why it's commanded. God says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and who keeps it. Some people have said, Revelation is the only book in the Bible that gives you a blessing just for reading it. No, 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 no. What it's saying is, hey, read this book out loud in your churches, and you're blessed if you do that, and if you keep it, if it affects you. So as we close the service today, we're going to have, this just very simple. If the words of this prophecy have affected you, then you need to follow a lamb. That's as clear as we can make it. And if you want to know how do I do that, over at the table after the service, people over there will pray for you. And they will talk to you about, hey, all right, how do I start following this lamb here? Or maybe you were following the lamb, but you kind of decided, mm, the lies of the beast have been a little more persuasive to me. And God may be saying that sevenfold spirit of God, the Holy Spirit may be saying, hey, this is what's true. You need to get back into my army, into my ranks. So if God's, God's doing that, again, there'll be people over there that will pray with you and for you. I encourage you. I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. So I don't have a smooth, eloquent, come to Jesus moment laid out where there's some nice music in the background. Right there, yeah, it's already started. Like, I don't, I don't have a, you know, because it's not a show. It's not a, it's not a sales pitch. Okay. It's, it's, this is the word of God. This is the truth of God. You have to decide, what am I going to do with this truth? And, and that's between you and God. So let's close with prayer. And then after, well, I'll give you a second. But Lord, just today, make these words real in our lives. Make, make the words of Revelation be as real to us as they were to the Christians in the seven churches in Asia Minor. Help us to see this book and all of the books you've inspired in Scripture as not just ways that we can add a little Jesus to our life, not just ways that we can live our best life now, not just ways that we can get ahead in the world or have, you know, success or what. Lord, all of that stuff, if it happens, we thank you for it, but it's secondary. What matters is we want to follow you and we want to follow you faithfully. And we don't do that very well. So show us how to be better followers. Show us how to move in our hearts, stir our hearts. Holy Spirit, you're here. You're not a magical force. Uh, you've been here since before anybody came in here. I don't have to invite you. You're here. You've been here. So Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Work in our minds. Turn, move us, shape us, mold us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. Help us to be faithful members of this end times army that we're in, fighting this battle through being willing to lay down our lives. God, that's the message. 
that you've given your people help us to bring it, uh, help us to take it in, help us to consume it, and, and that it, it changes. That's the end of the day, Lord, just changes. Thank you for this opportunity to speak with my friends here at Open Arms. Thank you for the ministry of Open Arms. Lord, I pray you would bless this church, not as a church, not in new numbers or anything like that that most people would measure success by, although those would be great. We would ask for you to grow their numbers and, and grow the, the, the impact. But what I pray, my prayer is for that they would have deep fellowship with each other as people who are fellowshipping with you. That this community would be a beacon of light in a sea of darkness. That it would be a little, uh, a little beachhead, a little, a little front operating base in your army, where this community in this surrounding area knows that there's a group of people and they're here and they're for you. And they're 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 a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Lord, let them be all these things, and and then send whoever you can that needs that hope and that needs to be loved and to be uh, served by the hands and the feet of our King of the slaughtered land who we follow. Lord, thank you for this and all the blessings that you give us that we don't even think to thank you about. Help us see those and appreciate this every day. God, we lift up this world to you right now. There's a, there's, there's literal war happening. Lord, there's beloved children who you have shed your blood for in Russia, in Ukraine, in the Middle East, in Africa, in all of these places where there are conflicts going on. Even the ones that aren't getting the 24-hour news cycle for us. You know their names. You know their tears. They bear your image. So, Lord, send your people to help wherever they can. And God, we just say, come Lord Jesus, make all things new. Do what Revelation says you will ultimately do one day. In Jesus' name, amen.